In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The epistle today from Joel gives us a unique opportunity to view not only today's gospel, but the entire season of Lent from the perspective of the story of the people of God. So let me read that passage. Joel 2, verses 12 to 19. Through the prophet, the Lord says, Yet even now, return with, with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make your, your heritage a re, make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, "Where is their God?" So Joel's ministry as a prophet, we aren't sure exactly when, but probably took place at some point after Israel's exile. And the contents of his book called Judah to Repentance, at a time when the nation faced the devastation of a horrible plague of locusts. And we get the sense of the severity of the plague in the first chapter where we read that the locusts have consumed even the vines and stripped the fig trees of their bark. Those are not normal locust foods. They're what the locusts would turn to once everything else had been consumed. That in itself is unusual because usually the locusts would eat their normal food and then move on to find more. So the vine and the fig tree, though, were symbols of peace and prosperity, and their consumption by the locusts, it speaks to the desperate situation the nation was in. Joel one thirteen notes, the priests lamented before the altar because they had neither grain nor drink left in the land to make their offerings to the Lord. It was that bad. So repeatedly, the prophet Joel speaks of the day of the Lord, a day to which Israel looked forward in eager anticipation. One day, the Lord would arise from his throne, the one who had tamed chaos to create an ordered cosmos and world, and he would do the same again. The Lord would arise to bring justice in the world and to set his people to rights, to bring order again. But Israel's problem over and over again was that she always saw herself in these situations as the innocent victim. On the day of the Lord, her enemies, they would be vanquished. She would be vindicated. It didn't occur to very many people in Israel, though, that the day of the Lord might not turn out to be quite what they thought. That the day of the Lord might turn out to be instead a judgment on Israel's own sins. And this gets at the heart of Joel's prophecy. The day of the Lord has come, and his own people have found themselves the focus of his judgment. Not what they expected. So the book is a call to repentance. 
Judah stands condemned for having offered the outward sacrifices of grain and wine and oil, the ones they can no longer make because the locusts have eaten it all. They've offered those outward sacrifices, but the people have not truly dedicated their hearts to the Lord. And so Joel reminds the people, this is not the end. The purpose of the Lord's discipline is to bring repentance, and with repentance then comes restoration. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Now, that does not mean that those outward trappings of religion and of repentance and of sacrifice were bad or unnecessary. Through the prophet, the Lord summons his people to fast, to weep, to mourn, to do those outward things, but to do them from the heart so that they're evidence of a true repentance. Unless they're tempted to make a show of rending their garments, the Lord declares it's more important that they first rend their hearts. Yes, rend your garments in repentance, but make sure that that's motivated because your hearts are truly rent already. The need for corporate repentance is here too. The priests are to take their place, Joel says, between the vestibule and the altar to weep and cry out for mercy while the nation joins them, the elders and the children. Even, the Lord says through the prophet, even the bride and bridegroom are to suspend their honeymoon. That's how serious this was. So that the whole nation could take part in this corporate act of repentance. And in response to the honest repentance of the nation, the Lord promises restoration. Even that one day he will solve this heart problem that his people had by pouring out his spirit on them and into them. And that day, he says, he will establish his people forever. He will, as they had always hoped, he will put an end to their enemies. And here our epistle, um, as, as we begin our Lenten fast, even here it sets our eyes on Easter and on the age to come that, that burst out of the tomb that first Easter morning. Even as we're reminded by the old Israel of the importance of penitence, both as individuals and corporately as a church, we're also reminded that we are not the old Israel. We are the new Israel. We are the people who live on the other side, on this side of the Lord's promise to pour out his spirit. So then if we turn over to, the, to today's gospel, we see Jesus addressing the same old problem. Many people in Israel still continued hundreds of years later to put on a show of outward piety while their hearts were far from the Lord. They would make their sacrifices. They would go up to Jerusalem to the temple for Passover every year. And then they would go home and do the same old things they'd always done that weren't honoring to God. So Jesus warns that those who put on a show for others have received all they will ever receive for their efforts. They may have received respect and honor from all those around them. Wow, that was a really nice lamb that you brought to, to the temple for a sacrifice. Wow, you gave a lot of money and I heard all the coins ring as they went in the, in, into the, the collection box. That's all the honor they'll get. They may receive respect and honor from the people around them, but these things do not move God. So think, think again of the day of the Lord, that day when the people of Israel anticipated the Lord coming to defeat their enemies and set everything to rights and, and to set them reigning forever, to be on top of the heap. Many people fasted and made public acts of repentance in anticipation of that day. 
So Jesus' warning in light of that should have been pretty frightening, really. As the Messiah, he was now setting in motion the events that would culminate in the day of the Lord. And here he warns that those who have made an insincere show of repentance, they're not going to have a share in that day. Or, well, to be more truthful, they will have a share in that day, but it will not be the share they always wanted. It will be a share of judgment, not deliverance. Instead, it'll be those who, to use the language of Joel, those who have rent their hearts, whom the Father will see and reward and deliver. They're the ones who will know the age to come and life in the presence of the Lord. So let your investment be in the age to come, Jesus exhorts the people. Investment in the things of this age, it's not going to last. He says, moth and rust corrupt, thieves break in and steal. More importantly, our investments in the values and the systems of the present evil age, beyond what's necessary to sustain ourselves, they're foolish in light of what we know in Jesus. The new age has already been inaugurated. It's coming. Why are you putting money in a stock that's falling? Invest in Jesus. We're reminded of of this past Sunday's epistle from 1 Corinthians 13. Consider that even even the good God-given gifts of tongues and prophecy, even if they would one day cease to have a purpose when the age to come has been consummated, how much more ought we to hold lightly to the praises of others and to investment in the values and systems and institutions of the age that's passing away? Instead, Jesus encourages his people to lay up treasure in heaven. As we listen to Jesus here, it's important to remember that Jews did not understand heaven the way that a lot of people do today, not as if he's referring to someplace up there or the afterlife or something like that. In Jewish thought, and it should be in our thought, heaven is simply God's realm, earth is ours. And they're supposed to be overlapping and joined together, God and man living together. And Jesus has come to heal the breach that our sin has made between them. Jesus, God, taking on our flesh and coming to die and to rise again, to set everything to right, to bring God and man back together. One day, heaven and earth will be fully rejoined. One day, as the Jews had always hoped, everything will be set to rights. Evil will be wiped away from the face of the earth. Redeemed humanity will live in the presence of God. It is that dawning age into which we ought to be investing, knowing that what we do out of love for God and love for each other in this age is what will last in the age to come. So Israel struggled with repentance. Even the people around Jesus struggled with it. They lived in anticipation of the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to pour out His Spirit and to set right the hearts of His people. There is then a, there's a definite and distinct difference between our season of penitence and theirs. Because, brothers and sisters, you and I live on the fulfillment side of the Lord's promise. We are the people redeemed by Jesus at the cross, the people in whom the Spirit of God dwells, and that has changed everything. But we, too, live in anticipation of the day when everything will be finally set to rights and the kingdom finally comes in all its fullness. And so it is just as important for us to set our eyes on Jesus and to commit ourselves to investing in the things of his kingdom to repent of every place we've, we've falsely put our loyalties and our resources. And again, 
to put everything in Jesus. Brothers and, sir, brothers and sisters, that's the purpose of our Lenten fast. Each year, the church calls us to slow down, to take a break, and to fast so that we can, for at least these few weeks, invest some time that we wouldn't normally invest in considering God's Word, in considering the Gospel, in considering what Jesus has done for us by His death and resurrection, a time to think on God's love for us revealed in Jesus, and to make a point of being deliberate about our love for each other, and especially for the poor and needy, so that as we approach Easter, we will have our eyes more firmly set on Jesus, and new life, and new creation, and everything that he has in store for us. It should be like that every day, all year long. But we tend to forget. Again, we get distracted. Things push reading scriptures. Things push prayer. Things push that contemplation of the love of God displayed at the cross out. And so the church brings us back once again. And we fast and we pray for a season. Lent's a little bit like my wife, the piano teacher who isn't here yet. If you want one day to play in the Lord's great symphony, your piano teacher, whatever instrument you play, is going to insist you practice. And Lent comes around like that music teacher, putting the message before us again and urging us to be diligent to practice the music that the Spirit has given us to play today, the music of faith and the music of hope, the music most of all of love, so that when that great day comes, we can join with our Lord in his great symphony. So let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made, and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.